here. Uh, thank you, everybody, for showing up. Uh, today, we are very fortunate to welcome Dr. Jonathan Chow. He is a brilliant young man. He's accomplished a tremendous amount in his short career. Uh, he has slowly worked his way down from med school to fellowship from the heights of Albany down to D.C. So he's honestly spread all the way down and we have recruited him back up north. His only jump north, his entire medical career, was to go from D.C. to Baltimore when he joined here in 2017, where not only does he practice anesthesiology, but critical care medicine in the SICU, specializing in liver transplant anesthesia. And he also runs our Anesthesia Critical Care Fellowship. Uh, but we, what we brought him here for was his expertise and international knowledge on vasodilatory shock. He's published on this. He's been an expert panel for ACS, and now he's here to grace us for the next hour with all this information. So, Dr. Chow, thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for the uh, very flattering introduction. Uh, so my name is John Chow. I'm one of the uh, anesthesiologists and uh, intensivists here uh, in the Department of uh, Anesthesia. Um, and I'm here to talk to you guys today about uh, what to do with the patient when uh, you have them in vasodilatory shock and kind of rescue methods that you can employ to try and uh, help them from their pathology. So there's several different types of shock that uh, we are all aware of. Um, so the first is hypovolemic shock. Um, that's from uh, massive hemorrhage, from gunshot wounds, from uh, severe diarrhea, uh, we see cardiogenic shock in the C, uh, CCU and the CSICU from uh, acute MIs, from uh, valvular heart diseases and uh, arrhythmias. Uh, we see obstructive shock from uh, pulmonary uh, embolisms, from uh, tension pneumothoraces, uh, from cardiac tamponade, uh, which uh, Ram and I and Christine encountered the other day in the uh, SICU post-liver transplant. Um, and we have distributive shock. Uh, the most common form is a septic shock, but we also see uh, anaphylactic shock as well, um, as well as uh, spinal shock from uh, high cervical cord injuries or from uh, misadventures in uh, the L&D unit with uh, high spinals or uh, total spinals. So uh, the most common form of shock that we encounter by far is a distributive shock. About two-thirds of cases that we of shock that we see in the ICU is distributive shock. Um, the rest is distributed amongst uh, hypovolemic shock, which represents about 16%, um, cardiogenic shock as well, uh, 16%, and then less commonly, uh, uh, non-septic distributive shock and uh, obstructive shock. And again, septic shock is by far uh, the most common form of shock that we see um, in the ICU. So why do we care about shock um, and maintaining blood pressure? Um, this was a study that was done by uh, Sessler and his group out of the uh, Cleveland Clinic. Um, and he took a look at 33,000 patients who came in for non-cardiac surgery. And uh, he measured their lowest uh, intraoperative uh, mean arterial pressure during the case. And not surprisingly, when you hit a blood pressure of about 65, you have now uh, increased your risk of developing post-op uh, acute kidney injury. Um, and at a map of 65 or less, you have now increased your risk of 
uh, post-op myocardial injury as well. What was kind of surprising was that the uh, duration of hypotension mattered as well. So if you are hypotensive for between 60 seconds and five minutes, which I would argue uh, occurs every single time uh, you put someone to sleep in the operating room or after every induction in the ICU, you have now increased your risk of developing post-op AKI by 1.3 times. Now, if you are now hypotensive for 6 to 10 minutes, you have now increased your risk of developing cardiac complications by 1.5 times. And if you're hypotensive for over 20 minutes, you have now doubled your risk of developing post-op myocardial injury. So MAP matters. um, And when a patient is hypotensive, uh, we have to do everything that we can to keep their blood pressure in a uh, normal range. In uh, cardiac surgery, uh, post-op vasoplegic syndrome um, is another uh, common, relatively common entity. Um, and patients who are vasoplegic for over 36 hours now have an increase in their mortality by uh, 25%, and there's a higher rate of uh, multi-organ failure um, as well. And uh, this study, which was done in uh, Jerusalem, took a look at patients who were on low-dose versus high-dose vasopressors. So they defined high-dose vasopressors as greater than 0.5 mics per kilo per minute, um, and then they stratified these patients. They found that simply being on a high-dose presser was independently associated with mortality, Um, and that's nothing uh, new. Uh, We all know that. And uh, they found that uh, simply being on high-dose vasopressors increases your mortality uh, by 5.1 times. So if a patient is hypotensive, uh, we could just turn their norepi up as high as we want, um, and that will maintain your blood pressure. But uh, we all know that uh, that also comes with increased risk as well. And we've seen these patients in the surgical ICU. We've seen them in the MICU. We've seen them as transfers from outside hospitals where they uh, come with 0.7 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine, uh, one mic per kilo per minute of norepinephrine. They start getting uh, ischemia in their distal limbs. They start developing ischemia in their trunk. They start developing uh, mesenteric ischemia. About four months ago, um, I got a transfer from an outside hospital that came in uh, from the CCRU Um, And she was uh, 18 years old. She uh, had leukemia uh, and uh, had a febrile neutropenia. She came to us from the outside hospital on three mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine and nothing else. So 3.0, not 0.3 or 0.03, 3.0 mics per minute of uh, mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine We go straight to the operating room because we know she has mesenteric ischemia and her entire small bowel and large bowel are completely necrosed um, and dead because of the amount of uh, norepinephrine um, that she's on. So uh, we know that uh, we can, while we can increase the norepinephrine as high as we want, we have to use other adjuncts as well to help with our resuscitation. To kind of highlight this, Um, I'm going to go through a case that uh, we encountered in our surgical ICU 
um, two Thanksgivings ago. So this was uh, November of 2017. Uh, this patient uh, walked into the hospital. Uh, he was uh, 70 years old. Um, he came in for a scheduled uh, laparoscopic uh, diverting loop ileostomy for uh, large bowel uh, obstruction. So the initial case went fine. Um, he uh, was extubated post-op, uh, went to the PACU, and then went up to Weinberg 5. Uh, on post-op day 3, this is now uh, midnight of uh, Thanksgiving Day, uh, he becomes tachycardic, he becomes hypotensive, his lactate starts rising, it's 4, um, and he has a surgical abdomen. So um, at about 1 o'clock in the morning on Thanksgiving, uh, he goes down to the operating room for an emergent X-lap, and... Uh, pre-op, uh, his uh, SOFA score was 10, which automatically conferred a 40 to 50% uh, mortality in this patient. So he is already uh, pretty sick. So uh, we tracked this patient uh, over uh, five or six days and uh, tracked his hourly uh, blood pressures, lactates, uh, norepinephrine dose, and vasopressin dose. Uh, in the operating room, he was uh, pretty well resuscitated. He got 6.1 liters of fluid. He got a unit of blood because his hemoglobin was 6.9. He was started on uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics uh, immediately in the OR. Um, And despite all of this, uh, post-op, when he arrived in our uh, ICU, his uh, lactate was still high. It was about 6. And he was still profoundly hypotensive. He was on 0.48 mics per kilo per minute of uh, norepinephrine uh, plus 0.04 of vasopressin. And that is on top of uh, additional broadening of his antibiotics to uh, vancomycin, uh, zosin, and mycofungin. And we also gave him a uh, rescue dose of gentamicin. Uh, and then we also gave him stress dose uh, steroids as well. So um, what is causing all of this? What is causing this patient uh, to become so uh, profoundly uh, uh, vasodilatory? Um, so nitric oxide is one of the uh, potent uh, endogenous vasodilators that we uh, produce. Um, and increased production of nitric oxide is an important feature of uh, septic shock. And this is a, a rather uh, busy diagram, but if you just focus on the uh, nitric oxide, which are the uh, red um, circles here, um, you can see that when nitric oxide diffuses into the smooth muscle, it activates uh, guanylate cyclase, which then activates CGMP and then inhibits myosin light chain kinase from causing smooth muscle uh, contraction. So nitric oxide will, uh, uh, in essence, uh, cause you to uh, vasodilate. Um, in normal uh, people like uh, you and I, uh, we produce uh, a small amount of nitric oxide. Um, so through uh, constitutive uh, nitric oxide synthase, uh, we uh, continually release nitric oxide to uh, auto-regulate our blood pressure. Um, and that release is based on uh, vascular shear forces um, and expression of uh, constitutive nitric oxide synthase uh, synthesizes nitric oxide for a short amount of time. So uh, you can see uh, right here you have uh, nitric oxide synthase, uh, and that will release uh, nitric oxide so that uh, when uh, you go to the gym, for example, and start working out, that your blood pressure doesn't go up to uh, 300 
uh, millimeters of mercury because you have uh, some nitric oxide that will help uh, regulate the uh, diameter of your uh, blood vessels. So uh, there's a second form of, there's a second method by which nitric oxide is produced, and that is through uh, inducible uh, nitric oxide synthase. So uh, you and I have very low uh, activity of this right now because we uh, presumably are not septic right now, um, but it's induced by macrophage uh, activation by IL-6, uh, by TNF-alpha, um, and its purpose is to form cytotoxic molecules uh, for invading pathogens. The big difference between inducible uh, nitric oxide synthase and constitutive nitric oxide synthase is the time frame. So uh, inducible nitric oxide synthase will produce nitric oxide for a prolonged period of time, which will cause a prolonged uh, vasodilation. So you can see here um, your uh, interleukins, your TNF-alphas, uh, interferon, and adenosine will all... Uh, uh, stimulate nitric oxide synthase to produce nitric oxide for a prolonged period of time. So what if we eliminated nitric oxide synthase from the equation? So uh, this group out of uh, Cornell, uh, they gen genetically engineered uh, some mice to lack uh, this enzyme. And they found that in these knockout mice, uh, when they inoculated them with bacteria, that they would become septic, but they would never uh, go into septic shock, and they would never uh, become hypotensive. So wouldn't it be great if we had a drug in medicine that would also uh, work on humans in this uh, fashion? And it turns out that we do. Um, and uh, one of the drugs that is available is uh, methylene blue, and it precisely works uh, on this pathway. So uh, you can see that methylene blue works on two portions of this pathway. So uh, methylene blue will inhibit uh, nitric oxide uh, synthase uh, to, uh, to uh, prevent the formation of nitric oxide, but then it also works downstream as well. So it will also inhibit guanylocyclase so that if any nitric oxide is produced, that it will prevent nitric oxide from acting on uh, cyclic uh, GMP. So while this pathway uh, sounds great on paper, um, how does it work in real life? So uh, this was a group uh, out of Argentina. They took a look at 56 uh, vasoplegic patients who were on uh, norepi uh, on an average of uh, 0.7 mics per kilo uh, per minute, and they randomized them to methylene blue or to placebo. They found that those patients who got the methylene blue, uh, their vasoplegia uh, all resolved within two hours, whereas patients who got the uh, control uh, normal saline, um, that over a quarter of those patients were still vasoplegic uh, post-op, um, and 75% of those patients who were still persistently vasoplegic uh, had mortality and died. Uh, comparing that to the methylene blue group, uh, which had uh, zero deaths. They reported a 21% uh, reduction in uh, mortality and uh, also a lower incidence of uh, renal failure, respiratory failure, uh, sepsis, and multi-organ uh, dysfunction. There was another study uh, which was done in Turkey, 
Um, and they also prospectively looked at the use of methylene blue to prevent uh, vasoplegic syndrome. So they randomized 100 patients uh, undergoing elective cabbage, uh, on-pump cabbage, uh, who were on, uh, who had high risk of developing vasoplegia. So these were the patients who were on pre-op heparin, they're on ACE inhibitors, uh, amio, and calcium channel blockers, and they randomized them to methylene blue or to placebo uh, one hour pre-op uh, before incision. And they found that during the case that these patients who received methylene blue had higher uh, systemic vascular resistances, uh, they required less norepinephrine during the case, they required less ionotropic support, they got less crystalloids, colloids, and uh, red blood cells. And uh, furthermore, they had a lower incidence of vasoplegia. They got out of the ICU uh, almost a full day quicker, and then they got out of the hospital about two days quicker. One of the big side effects of uh, methylene blue is that it will uh, discolor your urine for those of you who have uh, used it. So your urine will turn uh, this bluish uh, green uh, tint, but it's uh, mild and it's usually uh, self-resolving. Um, and this study did not report any um, other uh, adverse effects. There was a uh, follow-up study, which was uh, done in the Journal of uh, Cardiothoracic and uh, Vascular Anesthesia. And this was done by uh, Medicum uh, Weiner um, out of Mount Sinai. Um, and he found results that were quite the opposite. So uh, he took a look at uh, 226 patients uh, who came to Mount Sinai uh, for cardiac surgery. Um, and then he uh, looked at their outcomes and then propensity matched them as well. So he found that the patients who got methylene blue, uh, profoundly, they had increased morbidity, they had increased mortality, um, they had, they had uh, longer days uh, in the ICU and required more uh, ionotropic support. So uh, there's really not much uh, concrete uh, level 1A evidence for or against the use of methylene blue. Um, even in the systematic review, which was in the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine, uh, all the studies that they looked at, uh, I mean, look at the number of patients that were enrolled in the study, 14, 10, 15, 14. So it's really hard to make any definitive con conclusions when you don't have any uh, large-scale uh, randomized uh, control trials uh, on the topic. So um, in our case, going back to our patient, um, he was on 0.48 mics per kilo per minute of norepi. Uh, we decided to try methylene blue, and it did decrease his uh, norepinephrine requirement. Uh, we kind of hit a plateau of about 0.3 mics per kilo per minute of uh, norepinephrine, and then nothing else really happened afterwards. So um, at this point, uh, this patient is still on high-dose pressors. Uh, his lactate is rising. It's uh, now almost eight. Um, so what do you do next? Um, so the person that was sitting next to me at the time, uh, I don't know if any of you remember her, uh, Liz Hankinson. Um, she was an intensivist here and then moved out uh, to be an intensivist in Alaska. Um, and she was telling me about uh, cases that she's uh, experienced in the past where uh, she has used vitamin B12 uh, with success. So uh, at this point, I mean, uh, our patients on high dose pressors, so I was like, why not? Let's just uh, give it a shot. So 
what's the evidence for uh, using a drug like uh, vitamin B12? So I searched through all of PubMed and could not find a single randomized control trial or a single uh, observational study uh, taking a look at B12. And the only thing I could find were three case reports uh, describing B12 in septic shock. So in the first case, it was a 69-year-old male who had uh, uh, an AVR and MVR, uh, was on norepinephrine, vasopressin, was refractory to uh, methylene blue times two, and they got uh, vitamin B12, uh, so five grams of cyanokit over 15 minutes, and the uh, systemic vascular resistance and vasopressor uh, requirement improved. Um, the mechanism uh, is thought to be through uh, nitric oxide scavenging, so uh, it works after the nitric oxide is uh, already produced. The second case report uh, was in a liver transplant patient, uh, a patient with a cryptogenic cirrhosis, uh, secondary to NASH, um, and then after reperfusion, uh, the maps were in the 45s, uh, was on uh, norepinephrine and vasopressin with a diminished uh, systemic uh, vascular resistance. Again, in this case, they gave uh, five grams of uh, hydrocobalamin uh, over 15 minutes with uh, resolution of the uh, vasopressor requirement. Again, uh, there are really only three case reports in all the literature, so there is uh, really zero evidence to back the use of uh, uh, vitamin B12 uh, for uh, vasoplegia. So... We've tried methylene blue. We've tried B12. The patient already has surgical source control. His on broad spectrum antibiotics is adequately uh, resuscitated. Uh, we've given rescue doses of uh, gentamicin. Uh, what could we possibly uh, do next? Um, so what about vitamin C? Um, so this is a topic that has uh, been in the literature uh, lately because of uh, Paul Merrick out of uh, Eastern uh, Virginia Medical School. Uh, and primarily it was this study that was published in CHEST uh, about two years ago. So he took a look at uh, not quite 100 patients, 94 patients uh, in uh, severe sepsis or uh, septic shock. Um, and this was a retrospective before-after study, meaning that the control group uh, was enrolled between uh, June and December, and the intervention group was enrolled between January and July. So uh, this was a res retrospective trial, um, and he intervened by administering uh, vitamin C, uh, 1.5 grams uh, every six hours for four days, plus uh, hydrocortisone, uh, 50 Q6 for seven days, and then thiamine, uh, twice a day for uh, seven days. And the reason why he chose vitamin C and not vitamin A or vitamin D is because uh, ascorbic acid is used as a, uh, is uh, used in the mechanism for uh, creating our endogenous uh, catecholamine. So it's used twice in the pathway um, in the production of uh, dopamine, uh, norepinephrine and uh, epinephrine. And it's a potent antioxidant and a free radical scavenger. Uh, vitamin C levels are frequently depleted in patients uh, with sepsis. Um, thiamine deficiency is also common in sepsis uh, in about one-third of patients. Um, and he chose the vitamin C because it 
increases your uh, sensitivity to glucocorticoids and because it's used in the catecholamine synthesis pathway. Um, he also used hydrocortisone because it's a glucocorticoid. And then he used thiamine for uh, metabolic resuscitation. So what did he find? Um, his results were quite stunning. Um, his, uh, he reported that the norepinephrine requirement uh, decreased significantly. Uh, you had uh, SOFA scores, which also uh, significantly uh, improved as well. Uh, your procalcitonin levels uh, also improved. Uh, but what was most stunning was uh, this slide right here, uh, which reported a over 30% reduction in mortality in these patients with uh, septic shock. In addition, um, he reported that the uh, requirement for renal replacement therapy in patients with septic shock was also uh, significantly less, and that uh, your uh, SOFA scores were also uh, significantly improved. So uh, a couple things to think about before uh, realizing that uh, a glass of vitamin C a day can keep the doctor away. Um, this is a single-center study, and the uh, biggest issue that uh, I have with the study is that it's a before-after design. So there are uh, non-concurrent controls. Um, the control group, enrolled patients from July, from June until December, uh, and the intervention group was from uh, uh, January through uh, July. So just off the top of my head, I can think of uh, two confounding factors. One is that the control group saw more inexperienced uh, residents, fellows, and attendings because uh, they enrolled patients in the summertime and the fall. Uh, and then another uh, compounding thing that uh, I thought of was uh, that patients in the intervention group were more likely to see uh, influenza because it took place uh, over the winter time. Um, so if you don't have control groups that are being enrolled at the same time, uh, you're going to have compounding factors. Uh, also, this was a retrospective study. It was uh, not blinded uh, at all. Um, and there were also three simultaneous interventions that occurred at the same time. So um, the approaches trial came out in the past year. So was the improvement in mortality and blood pressure due to the hydrocortisone, which has been shown to improve, improve blood pressure and mortality? Or was it due to the vitamin C? Uh, or was it due to the thiamine? Um, we don't really know. Also, um, almost 60% of the patients in the control group who were supposed to receive placebo also got uh, hydrocortisone, uh, so there was some uh, crossover there. So um, in their defense, uh, some of these results are similar to previous uh, randomized control trials on uh, vitamin C. Uh, vitamin C and thiamine all had excellent safety profiles. Um, there are not uh, that many side effects from them. Um, and uh, all three of these drugs are cheap and uh, re relatively uh, available. Um, so we probably should be studying this in a more, um, in a more uh, uh, controlled way with a uh, uh, really uh, good randomized control trial. And uh, in fact, there is a randomized control trial, which is uh, currently uh, enrolling uh, called the uh, Victus trial. Um, and this is a trial that is spread across uh, multiple sites uh, in the U.S. Um, you have places like Hopkins, Stanford, Emory, um, Denver that are uh, enrolling patients. Um, and then um, 
Mike McCurdy and his uh, colleagues in the ED uh, are actually going to be enrolling patients uh, in this study uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, and the next couple of months uh, here um, at the University of Maryland. So uh, we'll look out for um, that in our ICUs soon. So um, what about, um, so we don't have vitamin C here. So uh, we don't have it in IV formulation, so it's kind of hard to uh, use that. Um, what else can we do for this patient um, who has a uh, rising lactate, uh, who is still persist- persistently uh, hypotensive? Um, this other study came out uh, in uh, 2014, and this was the ATHOS-1 trial. So uh, this was a trial that took place at uh, GW. Um, the initial uh, uh, subset of patients uh, were uh, uh, septic patients. There were only 20 of these patients in this pilot trial. So uh, they found that patients who received IV angiotensin II had significantly decreased uh, levels of background uh, norepinephrine than if they got uh, placebo. The way uh, angiotensin II works um, is when your kidney senses uh, states of low uh, renal perfusion, it releases uh, renin. And uh, renin uh, then uh, catalyzes the conversion of angiotensinogen, which is made in your liver, uh, into angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 is then converted to angiotensin 2 by uh, ACE, or angiotensin converting enzyme. And this primarily happens in the pulmonary and uh, renal uh, endothelium. And once angiotensin uh, 2 is released, it then uh, acts on the angiotensin type 1 receptor, um, where it leads to uh, arterial vasoconstriction, it leads to ADH secretion, uh, stimulation of the adrenal cortex, aldosterone secretion, as well as increased water absorption. That all leads to our end goal of increasing uh, mean arterial pressure. So the largest uh, and only randomized control trial of this uh, was done in 2017. Uh, this was an international uh, multi-center double-blind placebo-controlled trial of uh, 344 patients who were in septic shock uh, on high-dose vasopressors. Um, so the uh, investigators included adults who were on high-dose pressors over 0.2 uh, mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine. Um, obviously, they all had central lines, A lines, and uh, indwelling foleys because they were all in septic shock. Um, they all had to be adequately fluid resuscitated uh, in, the pin- in the opinion of the uh, investigator, um, over 25 mLs per kilo of resuscitation in the previous six hours. Um, and then they had to have a clinical feature of high output shock. So um, they had to have a SCVO2 over 70 and a CVP over 8 or a cardiac index over 2.3. And the reason why they had these last two caveats is because they wanted to exclude patients who were in cardiogenic shock or other mixed shock states. So they just wanted to look at a distributive shock um, on its own. Um, they excluded patients uh, with burns. They excluded patients in uh, liver failure uh, with MELT scores over 30. Um, patients who were on uh, VA or VV ECMO, and then patients who are on greater than 500 milligrams of hydrocortisone per day, um, which is greater than the typical 
200 milligrams uh, a, a day that we give to patients um, on stress dose steroids. So uh, some demographics, uh, the median age of these patients were uh, 64 years old. Um, these patients were pretty sick. So they had a median Apache 2 scores of 27. Um, 97% of these uh, patients were on norepinephrine. About two-thirds were also on vasopressin. And then an additional uh, 15% were on phenylephrine and uh, epi. Um, and in terms of the number of vasopressors that they were on, uh, 83% of these patients were on two or more pressors, and almost half of these patients were on uh, three or more uh, vasopressors. So these patients were pretty much the sickest uh, septic patients that you could find in the ICU. So once you were enrolled in this study, um, you were randomized to one of two arms. So uh, if you were randomized to the placebo arm, uh, you would get uh, you would get your institution standard of care vasopressors plus a bag of uh, normal saline. If you were then randomized to the angiotensin II arm, in addition to the standard of care vasopressors, you would also get a bag of angiotensin II. And in the first three hours of the study, the primary endpoint was an increase in your MAP by 10 points or an increase in your MAP to 75, which uh, when I first read the trial sounds really fishy, because when was the last time you targeted a map of 75 uh, in your ICU? Um, well, it turns out that this was actually very deliberate uh, uh, by the investigators. Um, this was a phase three FDA-approved randomized control trial. So the FDA wanted the investigators to prove that angiotensin II was an adequate uh, vasopressor and not a catecholamine-sparing agent which is a subtle distinction that has uh, big effects on the design of the trial. So the FDA mandated that in order to prove that uh, this drug is a good vasopressor, you need to be able to increase your MAP by 10 points. Um, and that's what they did um, in the first three hours uh, to satisfy that requirement. Um, after uh, three hours were up, the MAP goals were then relaxed to the regular MAP goal of uh, 65 that we normally see uh, in the ICU. So the uh, primary endpoint of reaching your MAP target, uh, almost 70% of the patients who got angiotensin II, in addition uh, to standard of care pressors, uh, reached their MAP target by hour three uh, versus uh, 23% of those patients who only got standard of care uh, vasopressors. And the median time to reaching your MAP goal was only five minutes. So uh, this drug is uh, metabolized in the plasma, so it has very fast onset and offset time, um, which makes it an ideal drug for uh, titration. They also saw uh, improvements in your mean cardiovascular SOFA score. Um, they saw a decrease in the uh, dose of background vasopressors. So as soon as the angiotensin II was started, uh, placebo is in red and uh, angiotensin is in blue, you can immediately see that the dose of background vasopressors uh, significantly uh, decreased starting at hour zero. Um, and this was a trend that was uh, still significant by hour 48. In terms of mortality, uh, angiotensin II, uh, well, this study was not powered to detect any mortality. Um, it only enrolled 344 patients. Uh, nonetheless, you can uh, see that there's a signal toward uh, improved mortality, although this number is... Uh, not statistically significant, the p-value was 0.12. Uh, 
Um, the investigators uh, did several uh, pre-specified post hoc analyses of this data, um, and they found that patients who presented with a Apache uh, 2 score over 30, um, those patients enjoyed a significant uh, mortality benefit than if they had an Apache 2 score less than 30. Furthermore, um, if you were a patient with acute kidney injury uh, in septic shock, um, you also enjoyed a significant uh, mortality benefit, um, which uh, they reported as uh, 53% uh, versus 30%. So that's a, a very significant uh, mortality benefit. Not only that, but in those patients with AKI requiring renal replacement therapy, they got off dialysis faster by day seven. So uh, in patients uh, who got the AN2 plus uh, standard of care vasopressors, uh, 37% of those patients were off dialysis by day seven uh, versus uh, 15% in patients who uh, only got standard of care uh, vasopressors. In terms of adverse events, um, they reported uh, overall there was no significant difference in the rate of adverse uh, events, but they did report a, a higher rate of DVTs in the patients who got angiotensin II. Um, they couldn't really explain why, um, but if you look at the supplemental appendix in the New England Journal, uh, all three of these patients were not on DVT prophylaxis. So uh, if I intubate any one of you and then uh, leave you bedbound uh, in a bed for seven days, you're going to develop a DVT no matter uh, what drug I do or do not um, give you. So, um, so what happened in our patient? Uh, so again, uh, this was back in uh, November of, or Thanksgiving day of uh, 2017. Uh, at this time, uh, angiotensin II is not yet FDA approved. Um, it currently is approved and available on the market, but at that time, not approved. Um, you couldn't buy it from a shelf. Um, so I remembered reading about these two studies, and I actually Googled uh, the manufacturer of the company, um, and uh, it turned out that the FDA at that time was allowing uh, compassionate use of this drug. So in patients who were in distributive shock, where we basically exhausted all measures, including using vitamin B12, um, that were refractory, they were allowing uh, people to use the drug. So... Uh, I called up the pharmaceutical company on Thanksgiving evening, and this is 6 o'clock on Thanksgiving evening, uh, and I looked up their emergency hotline, and they actually picked up the phone uh, after about the eighth ring, and uh, I told them about our patient, and they're like, oh, yeah, sure, you can, uh, you can have our drug, but you need to get clearance from all these other entities first. So the uh, next number that they gave me was to the FDA, um, so I called the FDA at 6.30 p.m. on Thanksgiving evening, uh, and I got the head of the FDA on the phone, uh, Dr. Norman Stockbridge. Um, and uh, I'm telling him about our patient. I hear uh, kids in the background, uh, dishes in the background. I'm clearly interrupting his Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and he was like, yeah, yeah, John, just uh, we'll fill out the paperwork tomorrow. Click. <laughs> Um, so the next uh, body that I needed to uh, approve the drug was our IRB. This was a completely investigational drug that was not approved by the um, FDA. Um, so I called up the head of our uh, IRB at uh, 7 p.m. at night, and also he picked up the phone um, and was like, John, why are you calling me right now? And I was like, hey, I need 
uh, I need to use this drug and I need your approval. So he was like, yeah, um, go ahead, use a drug. We'll fill out the paperwork on Monday. <laughs> so, um, and then after that, um, we finally got uh, patient consent from their family. Uh, they obviously said yes, because uh, I really had nothing else um, to offer them. So I call back the drug company, and it's now 8 or 9 o'clock on Thanksgiving evening. Um, and the closest vial of this drug to Baltimore was in Chicago. And uh, since it's Thanksgiving evening, there were no more flights from O'Hare or Midway to uh, Baltimore. So they put it uh, on a uh, United Airlines flight uh, the next morning. Uh, I think this flight left at like 6 o'clock in the morning, and we tracked it on uh, our iPhones uh, during rounds to see when it would land. Um, and it landed at BWI. A courier came and picked it up uh, and then hand-delivered it to our pharmacist uh, in the basement. So uh, what happened after that? Well, um, I started the drug at noon, and within two minutes, my blood pressure was 180. And it was rising so fast that I thought the patient was going to have a stroke because our blood pressure was rising so quickly. So I turned off all of our vasopressors um, and decreased the amount of the angiotensin II infusion. And for the rest of this uh, patient's hospital course, he was on low-dose pressors and then was quickly weaned off of the norepinephrine. So you can see that immediately after we started uh, the angiotensin II, our uh, norepinephrine uh, requirement went uh, to almost zero. Um, our lactate started improving. Our, hemody our hemodynamics uh, also started um, improving as well. The reason why I weaned the norepinephrine off uh, over 24 hours, um, he was on like 0.05 of norepi for 24 to 36 hours, is because I had never used the drug before, neither had anyone in the SICU, so I was afraid that if I just turned off the ANG2 or the norepinephrine, that we would just start off at square one again, like we frequently do when we start methylene blue. Um, so that's why I uh, weaned the norepinephrine off um, very, uh, very slowly. So where does all of this uh, fit in our toolbox of uh, things and procedures uh, and medications that we use? Um, so for one thing, uh, cost. Cost is uh, extremely uh, important. Um, and uh, I don't know if you guys remember the drug uh, Zygris, um, but that was a uh, activated protein C uh, uh, agent that came with an enormous amount of sticker shock. Um, literally, you could hold a bag of Zygris in your hands and it would be worth more than your car. Um, but the angiotensin II is actually comparable to vasopressin in terms of cost. So the cost of uh, ANG2 uh, is $1,500 a day, $1,500. And patients who were on ANG2 in the trial were on it for an average of two days. Compare this to vasopressin which, depending on your market, is about $750 per day. Um, and you're usually on vasopressin for about four days. So you can take a drug that is double the cost and half the duration, or you could take a drug that is half the cost and double the duration, and mathematically it's the same. The one thing that uh, angiotensin II has over vasopressin is that it has actually been able to demonstrate a mortality benefit unlike any other vasopressor that we have uh, for septic shock. 
Um, there is no single study that shows benefit of one vasopressor over another, um, except for norepi versus dopamine in uh, septic shock. Um, but vasopressin has not been able to demonstrate superiority over uh, another vasopressor in septic shock. And there's certain, certainly no mortality benefit from using vasopressin um, as well. And then uh, timing. When should we use angiotensin II, this uh, new drug? Should we use it first line, second line, uh, fifth line? Um, in the study, they did a uh, pre, uh, pre-specified analysis of the uh, timing of angiotensin II, um, and they found that patients who were started on this drug earlier on in their hospital course, um, so before they reached uh, 0.5 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine, that they tended to have better outcomes than when it was started uh, later in their course. And that makes sense because um, if uh, you're circling the drain and you are about to code, uh, it doesn't matter what drug you give the patient, uh, it's probably uh, not going to help. So um, just to wrap up, uh, we now have uh, three different classes of medications um, that we um, can use to treat shock. Uh, one is norepinephrine, which is uh, stood the test of time. It's uh, very uh, cheap and it works uh, very well. Um, the other is uh, vasopressin, which hits the arginine uh, vasopressin system. Um, and now the uh, third drug that we have in our toolbox that we uh, can potentially use is uh, angiotensin II, which also is a efficacious vasopressor, but then also may have uh, benefits in other uh, subpopulations, such as Apache 2 score over uh, 30 and uh, in patients with AKI on uh, renal replacement therapy. And um, that's all I have for you guys. Uh, so... With that, I will uh, take any questions that you have. Yes. No, that's a good question. Uh, he was not on an ACE inhibitor. Um, and then the reason why uh, he's asking that is because patients who are uh, on ACE inhibitors will have uh, impaired production of uh, angiotensin II, so they'll naturally be uh, angiotensin to deplete, but our patient was not on an ACE inhibitor. Yes, Mike. One thing I'm interested in, I remember I tried to get an answer to on this, but you didn't really give a very direct answer. Is what's the effect on PPR? Because you know that was one of the supposed benefits of basal pressing, especially you know, basal pressing So, in cardiac, it was thought to be a useful basal presser for that reason, particularly in patients with right heart failure. So, is there any uh, data on the effect on I have not seen any data that mentions PBR at all. I think that's very interesting, though. Um, if we could have a drug that will uh, affect the uh, systemic uh, or the peripheral rather than the central circulation, um, especially in uh, cardiac surgery patients, that would be good data to have. But I have not seen uh, any data uh, on PBR. Yeah, we'll do the study. Any other questions at all? All right. Thank you very much.